Today I'm continuing a series talking about a hardened heart. And this is a series that I believe has direct application to every single person's life. One of the main points that I tried to make is that a lot of people think that a hardened heart only applies to somebody who's rebellious towards God and hates God, but they don't think it applies to them. But the Lord spoke this to me, and you know, I have never been through a period of rebellion. I've never gone away from the Lord. Of course, I hadn't done everything right, but I'm saying I've always loved God my entire life. And there was a period of time that I just thought that a hardened heart didn't apply to me until God spoke to me. And this is what we've been teaching on is about what a hardened heart is. To just boil it down, basically, if you are more sensitive to anything else than you are to God, then in that area, you are hard-hearted towards the Lord. An example is, let's say, for instance, if you are more dominated by what the doctor has to say, if the doctor's word that you're going to die carries more weight in your life than God's word that says you're going to live, then you're hard-hearted in that area of healing. If the banker says that you're broke financially, that you are going to have to file uh, bankruptcy and that it just isn't working and that the word doesn't work in this area. And if it seems like those thoughts are more dominant in your life than the scripture that says that you're blessed with all spiritual blessings and that God has uh, provided prosperity for you as a part of the atonement. If that doesn't dominate you more than what you see in your bank account, then you're hard hearted in that area of finances. So whatever you are the most sensitive to, is what you are softened to, would be the scriptural terminology, and the opposite of that you are hardened towards. You cannot be sensitive towards like sickness and healing at the same time. You can't be dominated by sickness and dominated by healing at the same time. They're opposite things. And God has made it so that our heart can really only effectively focus on one thing and accomplish one thing at a time. And so this is what we were talking about with hardened heart. Uh, God made it so that whatever you focus your attention on, you begin to be sensitive to that, dominated by that, exceptional in that. And the things that you neglect, you automatically begin to become insensitive to. Now, I believe that God gave us the ability to do that for a positive thing. So that, you know, we're in a world where it's not just all good that's out there. There's a lot of evil There's a lot of things that could come your way. There's a lot of heartbreak and a lot of hurt in uh, life as you live life. And God made us so that we can focus on the good. And it doesn't mean that you have to deny that there is bad. It doesn't mean that you're like an ostrich and you stick your head in the sand and say, no, nothing has ever happened to me bad in my life. But you just focus on the good. You are a thankful person. You focus on what God has done. And if you will do that, then you'll find that you will have have a joy and a peace and a happiness in your life. Or you can focus on the negative and magnify and talk about all the bad things that will happen and you'll be discouraged and despondent, depressed. God made us so that it works that way. If I was to focus on everything negative, everything I didn't get accomplished, everything I have to accomplish, if I was to think on that, I'd be discouraged and fearful just like anybody else. See, your emotions just follow your thoughts. 
And so anyway, this is what we're talking about is that God made us so that in a negative world where there's bad things around, you can know that, you know, there are problems. You don't have to be naive, but at the same time, you can be so focused upon God, so focused upon his promises that your heart is sensitive to and dominated by God and faith and hope and love dominates you, even in the midst of a very negative world. Most of us spend most of our time listening to the bad news of this world and in our mind thinking on negative things. And as a result, it makes us sensitive to the hurt and to the pain and to the unbelief and the fear and the unforgiveness and the anger, all of these kind of things. And it automatically starts hardening us towards God. That's what the Bible is talking about. The word hardened when used the way that it's used in the Bible here is talking about to be cold insensitive, unfeeling, and unyielding. And this is what we've been talking about for the last two weeks. We've already established that there are two main things that harden our hearts towards God. Out of Hebrews chapter 3, the scripture there says, exhort one another while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. So the scripture makes it very clear in Hebrews chapter 3 that sin will harden your heart towards God. Now, I'm not majoring on sin because I feel that the majority of the body of Christ is majoring on sin. Matter of fact, most people would think that sin is probably the only thing that really hardens our heart towards God, makes us cold, insensitive, unfeeling, and unyielding. And so I'm not going to major on sin being a source of a hardened heart because I believe that most people already recognize that. But just because I'm not majoring on it, doesn't mean that it's unimportant. It is important that you not go out and live in sin. And for those of you who have been listening to my teaching and you've heard me talk about the grace of God, that God doesn't love us proportional to our performance. He doesn't answer our prayers or use us because we are worthy of being used, but it's all the grace of God. If you've heard that and if you've really received that message, then this message on a hardened heart is a perfect balance to that. It doesn't contradict, it doesn't negate what I've said about the grace of God at all, but it shows us that even though God loves us and will use us and answer our prayers independent of our performance, that does not mean that our performance is unimportant. Because if you go out and live in sin, you harden your heart towards God. God doesn't harden his heart towards you. He's already placed all of your sin upon Jesus, but your heart will become hardened, cold, insensitive, unfeeling, and unyielding towards God. So therefore, if you're living in sin, quit it. And I am not trying to minimize the importance of not going out and violating your conscience and living in sin. Every time you do that, it just adds a layer of insensitivity towards God, and you don't want that. But as I said, I'm not trying to minimize the importance of living a godly life, but I am going to emphasize the second thing that hardens your heart because it's more subtle, and I don't think most people recognize this. And I've shared a little bit of this on our programs last week. I just want to take that this week and amplify it and go further into this. But to boil it all down, basically, whatever you focus your attention upon, you become sensitive to. Whatever you neglect you become hardened to. And this doesn't have to be focusing your attention upon something that we call call quote-unquote sin. It could just be focusing your attention upon anything. 
For instance, if we go back to Mark chapter 6, the scripture that the Lord really used to start revealing this teaching about hardness of heart to me on, it was talking about the disciples and the Lord told them to get into a ship somewhere around sundown and to go unto the other side and he would meet them on the other side. And they got into the ship around sundown, around 3 to 6 a.m. They were only halfway across that lake and they were in the midst of a terrible storm and it looked like they were going to drown. And in the midst of their crisis situation, Jesus came walking unto them upon the water and it says he made as though he would have passed by them and they cried out to him and he came unto them. The wind ceased, the waves quit their um, roaring And immediately the boat and all of the inhabitants were translated to the other side. And when they saw this, they were sore amazed in themselves beyond measure and wondered is what it said in Mark 6, 51. And in verse 52, it says, For they considered not the miracle of the loaves, for their heart was hardened. The reason they were shocked at what Jesus did, the power that he had to totally dominate and control the situation that was about to kill them, The reason they were so shocked and surprised was because their heart was hardened and the reason their heart was hardened was because it says here they had not considered the miracle of the loaves. And so here's one of the major points that I've been making is the word consider means to study, ponder, deliberate, examine, or think upon. I believe the scriptural terminology would be meditate. Today we might say something like focus Whatever is your focus, whatever your attention is focused upon, you become sensitive to. And in this instance, it wasn't that they were reading Playboy magazines. It wasn't that they were in strife, plotting a bank robbery or doing something that we call call quote unquote sin. You know what it was that had occupied them and had hardened their heart towards God? It was trying to survive in the midst of a storm. These guys were all trained fishermen. They had been taught how to, you know, keep the bow of the boat pointed into the waves so that it doesn't hit the side of the boat and capsize it. They were using that knowledge. I'm sure they had taken the sail down and had, uh, you know, tried to stop the wind from blowing them a certain way. They were probably bailing. They were probably rowing. They were using all of the knowledge that they had learned about uh, fishing and about how to control a boat in heavy waters. And they were using just physical, natural things It wasn't sin, but they were so intent, so focused on staying alive that they had hardened their heart towards God. Now here is a major, major point. And I'm just praying that God will give you understanding that you can get this because this would really change your life. It is not just sin that hardens your heart towards God. But did you know that just being focused on staying alive, just being focused on everyday living, Just being focused on trying to provide a living for your family. Being focused on raising your kids and doing all of these things that are good in their place. There's nothing wrong with having this knowledge. There is certainly nothing wrong with these disciples having knowledge about uh, sailing and about how to uh, control themselves in the midst of a storm. You know, if I went out with somebody in a boat, I would want you to have some knowledge about boating so that I wouldn't be out there. I don't want you to take me boating by faith. Amen. I don't want you to drive me in a car by faith. 
I don't want you to have your eyes closed and say, I'm just letting God guide me about when to put on the brake and when to turn and where to go. No, I want you to use your eyes and use your brain and use some natural things. And I hope that you've learned how to drive defensively and to do things. You know, if I go flying with somebody, I want them to have knowledge about how to fly. I've got a great story on that. I won't take time to share it. But I've been in a plane where a guy, the pilot in a little two-seater plane, got so scared that he curled up in a ball in a fetal position and started screaming, my God, we're going to die, we're going to die. And it was only a two-seater plane. And so that means that while he was curled up in the fetal position crying, I was flying the plane. I have never flown a plane. I flew over Alamogordo Rifle Range and they threatened to shoot us down if we didn't get out of restricted airspace. And I had to get on the radio and just say, have mercy on me. The pilot's in a fetal position. I don't know how to fly a plane. And they never did respond. They were probably laughing so hard or I don't know what was going on, but they never did come back. They never did shoot me down. I had to fly the plane for over an hour while the pilots curled up in a fetal position. Uh, You know what? I don't like that. And from now, uh, from that time on, I check out the pilot before I get into a plane with somebody. If I if you're going to go flying a plane, I want you to have some physical knowledge about it. There is nothing wrong with that. There is nothing wrong with these disciples having this natural physical knowledge. We need some of that. But every one of us are going to encounter times when all of the natural knowledge is not going to be enough. There's going to be times, you know, you need to learn how to take care of yourself. You need to keep your weight down. You need to exercise. You need to eat right. You need to do healthy things. There are physical, natural things that you need to do. But every person is going to encounter sometime in their life a situation that just physical, natural things won't fix it. There's going to be something that you will encounter where a doctor will not be able to meet your need and surgery or pills, medication won't meet it. And when that happens, you had better be able to go beyond the physical, natural things that can be done and you had better be able to get into the spiritual realm. And if you're understanding what I'm saying, here is one of the things that hinders us in our relationship with God, causes us to have a hardness of heart. And that's just a preoccupation with the natural, physical world. Now again, we have to have some occupation with it. You can't function just totally in the spiritual realm. You have to know how to drive a car, how to sail a boat, how to fly a plane if you're going to be doing those things. We have to educate our mind and we have to learn some things to be able to function in this natural world. And there is a place for that. But with most people, it is way out of balance. Most of us are putting so much of our effort, so much of our time into physical, natural things that we are by neglect becoming insensitive towards God. Whatever you focus your attention upon, you become sensitive to or dominated by. Whatever you fail to focus your attention upon, you become insensitive to or you are not dominated by that. And once you understand this, you can reverse the process. And here's the good news part. You can actually become insensitive, cold, unfeeling, and unyielding towards all of the junk, the unbelief and the fear that this world has to offer. And you can become so sensitive to God that you just don't know how to disbelieve God. I don't know if you got that or not, but... Most Christians really believe that the Christian life is just a struggle. 
and that you have to be tempted and that you are constantly in the process of being drawn away from God. Matter of fact, some of these songs, uh, you know, there's some songs that I really love. Matter of fact, I use this one song as an introduction to my radio program for over a decade. And I love the song and the majority of it, but there was a part of it about I know that I'm just prone to wander and all of these things. Well, yes, there is a tendency there. But most people amplify that and talk about that so that it just seems like that the Christian life, you have to white-knuckle it and you're in a constant state of just resisting evil and resisting the flesh and resisting temptation. I know that as I talk about this, there's many of you saying, well, yeah, that's the way that it is. No, it doesn't have to be that way. You know why it is that way? Because we spend too much time considering all of this junk that this world has to offer, and because of it, we are sensitive to that. Your heart becomes sensitive to the things that you spend a lot of time contemplating and focusing upon. But the opposite side of this is that your heart becomes hardened towards things that you don't focus on. And if we would reverse the process to where we just focus our attention on the things of the Lord... If you were to spend not just a little bit of quality time, but quantity time seeking the Lord, studying the Word of God and praying with your heart and mind stayed upon God, did you know some of the temptations that seem to be just so strong in your life and that are just pulling you away from God, you would become hardened towards them to where honestly it would be hard for you to uh, go out and live in sin. Now, I know some of you right now are just saying, it's not so. This just isn't so. Well, it is so. It's my testimony. And I'm going to give you some more examples on this as we could go through this teaching. I think that will make this very clear. But you do not have to be to where it is just like there is a vacuum cleaner that is just always sucking you away from God, pulling you in the wrong direction. Yes, the potential is always there. We live in a world where there is temptation, but I'm saying you don't have to be dominated by temptation. You don't have to get to where you are really just, I mean, struggling, struggling, struggling to keep from going out and living in sin. You can get to a place where it's easier to live for God than it is to go out and live for the devil. And I know that that's hard for some people to understand, but it's absolutely true. Let me give you an illustration of what I'm talking about. That in our Bible college here, we have people, of course, come from different countries, from all over the United States. We have people uh, that come from every different background, every, every different situation you could imagine people come. So we have people come, and when they first come into the school, uh, many of them have a hardened heart towards God. They may not use that terminology, but scripturally, that's what we talk about. They're just insensitive. They don't hear the voice of God They don't have joy. Many people come with emotional problems. A lot of people come with physical problems, financial problems, marriage problems, things like this. And they come to the school with all of this uh, hardened heart towards the things of God, insensitive towards God, but very dominated and controlled by all of these negative things that we pick up in the world. And as they sit under the Word of God four hours a day of teaching... They get into an atmosphere of faith. They begin to start making relationships with people. And I tell you, one of the great things about our Caris Bible College here in 
Colorado Springs, and it's also true in Atlanta and in Chicago, in all of the places, our foreign schools, the UK, all of these schools have a, a, a common thread, and that is that it's just an atmosphere of faith. People love God. And the students minister to each other, not only during the school time, but in off hours they become uh, friends with each other. They go over to each other's house. They begin to start staying together. So here's, here's the deal. Over a period of time, these people who come in one way with hurts, pains, sickness, poverty, depression, anger, bitterness, all of these kind of things, as they sit under the Word of God and they just start focusing upon God to a greater degree than any of them have ever done in their life. Most of them have never sought God that strong in their life. Over a period of time, their heart just begins to change. Their heart begins to soften. And the depression begins to leave. The sicknesses leave. The financial problems leave. They begin to start prospering. Everything in their life begins to start changing. And most of the time, it is so gradual that the students don't really recognize it until like they take a break and go home for Christmas or something like that. As a matter of fact, I can remember one of our students who was uh, 17 years old when he came to school. And the only reason he came was because it was an opportunity to get out of the inner city of Chicago. And his mother paid for him to come and gave him an apartment and a car. And so he had all of these perks. And so he just thought, well, what a great deal. So he came to school, but he didn't like it. He didn't even want to be here. He, could, he kept talking about, I can't wait until Christmas comes. I'm going home and I'm not coming back. And so that was just his thing that he told everybody. So he stayed in school for approximately six months. When he went back home over the Christmas break, he tried to go back and reintegrate himself with his friends and get back into that. Two of his friends had been murdered in inner city Chicago. And he found out, he didn't realize it, but his heart had been changed. His desires had changed. His way of thinking had changed because he'd been sitting under the Word four hours a day. He was fellowshipping. He made new friends, new believers, people who were in love with God instead of people who were out into all the gang mentality. And he went back and just realized that he didn't necessarily want it when he first came, but he had changed. And he liked the changes that he saw. Anyway, he came back after the Christmas break and he stayed through two years of school and it changed this guy's life. And this is what I'm saying is most of us don't realize how much that the world has uh, integrated itself into our thinking. You know, I don't watch much television. I try not to listen to the radio except Christian radio and do some things. But even though I, I limit my exposure to this, I still get negative things spoken. Like, for instance... I know that sometimes I, I listen to the news on the radio because I like it. It's about a three-minute blip, and you don't get as much unbelief as you get when you watch 30 minutes or an hour's worth of news on television. I figured I could handle three minutes and find out what's going on in the world. But even in situations like that, they'll come up with negative statements about the bird flu that they're predicting is going to be a pandemic and destroy one-third of the Earth's population within the next year or so. Now, I know that some of you uh, have just heard these things and you let this go unchallenged. But you know what that is? That is an absolute... First of all, there's two ways I want to counter that. First of all, I don't believe that they're accurate in what they're saying at all. And I'm going to go on record saying that. 
I don't believe it, first of all, because I believe that they're just taking worst case scenario and these are people that are used to manipulating and motivating people through fear and extreme type of thing. I just don't believe it. I don't believe it any more than I believe the uh, Y2K thing. You know, January the 1st, 2000, that the whole world was going to come to a stop and that this was going to be the way that the Antichrist gains control and all of the things that were predicted about that. I went on record against that in advance. I'm doing the same thing about this pandemic. It is just extremism. So anyway, that's one reason I don't believe in it. But then the second thing is, even if it was to happen, I'm not going to be one of the one-third You know, even if you look at it that way, that means two-thirds of the earth population is going to be able to escape this. And I can guarantee you, if there was a bird flu or a pandemic, I'm going to be one of the ones that lived through it because I've got the promises of God that says no plague will come nigh my dwelling. And some of you I know right now are saying, well, boy, you are arrogant. How can you think things like this? You know why? It's because I have sensitized my heart to the things of God and the Word of God and the promise of God that no plague will come nigh my dwelling. Out of Deuteronomy chapter 28, Psalms chapter 91, and there's many other scriptures. I am more controlled, more sensitive, more dominated by those things than I am by what the news media is saying. And when I hear the news media say something like that, you can ask my wife, I stood right up and yelled at that television screen and I said, I reject this in the name of Jesus and I rebuked that and bound it. And some people think, well, boy, that doesn't mean anything. It does. Because I am not letting this unbelief that is said without factoring God into the equation. They don't recognize that God has anything to do with what happens in the world. And even if there is some kind of a flu or epidemic that goes around, they don't acknowledge that God has the power to deliver anybody from it. They just make a statement that is anti-God. It's it's, uh, not even factoring God into the equation. And they make it as if it's fact and say, this is the way that it is. And you know what? If I let that go unchallenged, if I let what the world has to say go unchallenged, then I become a little bit less dominated by the truth of God. I do not allow thoughts or things that I see or things that I hear to come into me that contradict the Word of God. And if they do, which I live in a world where I'm exposed to a lot of ungodliness, if I do have ungodliness come to me, I challenge it. I reject it. I say something against it. I do not just passively let those things soak in on the inside of me. Over a period of time, you become callous to it, insensitive. It doesn't have the same impact on you that it used to. God didn't create us to be insensitive to Him. God didn't create mankind to be so hard of hearing that we can't hear God speak to us and tell us things. The Scripture says that we're His sheep and His sheep hear His voice, John chapter 10. And it is normal for a Christian to hear the voice of God and just have God lead them and speak to them constantly every day of their life. And yet that's probably not the normal Christian uh, experience. Not because God has changed, but our heart has become so insensitive. We are so occupied, so inundated. We are what they call the information generation. We are hearing, you can hear today what is going on on the other side of the world, the things that are happening in Iraq, the things that are happening in all of these terrible tsunamis, earthquakes, 
anything that happened. You can hear devastation. You can have all of the bad things in the entire world that are happening come into your living room live. Did you know that there's no other generation that has been able to do that? And the sad fact is that we have been so focused on the natural realm, not necessarily sin, but just natural things that we have been sensitized to the natural realm and desensitized to the spiritual realm. Therefore, we are getting more natural results than we're getting supernatural results. And here is a principle that the Lord taught me that when I say this, it's going to sound, it's going to sound too simple to be true. It's like there's got to be more complication to this. But this is one of the greatest truths that I feel that God has ever spoken to me. I'll just make this statement and then we'll go to some scripture and verify this and explain it to you. But here's, in a nutshell, one of the greatest truths that God ever spoke to me. And that is that you cannot be tempted with anything that you don't think. You can't be tempted with anything that you don't think. And I believe I could even go into more specifics and say, you can't be tempted with anything that you don't think about a lot or focus on. Now, that's a strong statement. And if that be true, and I'm going to show you some scriptures that I believe verifies this, and we're going to illustrate this through a number of scriptural examples. If it be true that you can't be tempted with anything you don't think upon, then the key to overcoming temptation has to begin with the way you think. Now, here's some scriptures that will verify what I'm talking about. This is out of Hebrews chapter 11. For those of you that are familiar with this, this is what's often called the... uh, Uh, Hebrews Hall of Faith. It's talking about all these people, Enoch, Noah, Abraham, all of these people who lived and died and obtained faith and are examples. And so it's talking about all of them. And in verse 13, it says, These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off and were persuaded of them and embrace them, and confess that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. For they that say such things declare plainly that they seek a country. And if they, and truly, if they had been mindful of that country from whence they came out, they might have had opportunity to have returned. Now this is specifically talking about Abraham and Sarah, the people that God called from Ur of the Chaldees and told them to go out and that he would show them a land which they and their seed would later inhabit. And uh, this happened in Genesis chapter 11. The story begins there, and then in chapter 12 is when it starts in earnest. And when Abraham and Sarah were called by God, they were told to leave Ur of the Chaldees, which was down in what is today modern-day Iraq, around Babylon. And uh, they left that area and came into the promised land, And it says here that truly, in other words, this is a true statement. This is an accurate statement. And anytime the Bible has to qualify what it's saying by saying truly, then the reason it's doing that is because this seems like such a bold statement, such a strong statement that some people might think, well, I'm not sure that that applies in every situation. So the Bible will say truly or verily, verily, I say unto you. In other words, what it's trying to do is validate that regardless of how hard this may Uh, be to understand this is an accurate statement. So he says, truly, if they had been mindful of that country from whence they came out, they might have had opportunity to have returned. 
This is linking their opportunity to go back on what God had told them to do to what they were thinking. That's what the word mindful means. It means your mind full of something. And if they had been mindful, if their mind had been focused upon what they left, they would have been tempted to go back. For them, going back to Ur of the Chaldees would have been temptation because God told them to leave Ur of the Chaldees, to leave their father's house, forsake all of their acquaintance and totally make a break and then go out and inherit this land. So for them, going back would have been temptation. And this is so clear. This is a strong statement. I know that many of you have probably read this verse, Hebrews eleven fifteen, and have just looked at it as kind of a conjunction, a filler between two other subjects or something, and you've gone right on by it and hadn't thought about it. But think about this. This is a strong statement. It says, If they had been mindful of the country from whence they came out, they might have had opportunity to have returned. You could turn this verse around and say it this way that if they weren't mindful of the country that they came out of, well, then they wouldn't have opportunity to return. If one is true, the other has to be true. And what this is saying, basically, to boil it down into a succinct statement that you can retain, it's just saying that you can't be tempted with what you don't think. Now, that is profound. That is one of the greatest things that God's ever spoken to me. You can't be tempted with something that you don't think. So, instead of allowing all of these thoughts to come to you that breed temptation, that provide a fertile bed for temptation, and then allow that temptation to be planted and try and weed it out and kill it before it brings forth its fruit and causes you to do something wrong, a better way to approach temptation is to learn how to avoid being tempted. And the way you avoid being tempted is by controlling the way you think. That's what this is saying. You know, I talked to some of our Bible college students. I was talking to one recently that I offered a job. And um, anyway, he was contemplating taking the job, but he was looking at some of the hardships that he would have, transitioning from a secular employment into working in the ministry. There were some potential problems and stuff. And I don't believe it's totally wrong to acknowledge and to think through something. But he he came to me and he says, I know that God is telling me to do this. I know that this is what God wants me to do. But, and then he started listing all of the things. The finances, he would have to be taking a decrease in pay. He would be doing this, 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 this. And he started listing all of these things. And I just stopped him right in the midst of it. And I said, you know, I can't really offer you an answer to what you're saying the way you're asking it because in my life, once I knew what God told me to do, I never, ever, and some of you may think that this is an overstatement, but this is absolutely the way I've lived my life. Once God tells me to do something, I don't consider what if. I don't compare it with this or that. If God tells me to do it, then there is no option about will I do it. No, I am going to do it. I may have to seek wisdom about God. How can I do it? Show me a way. Give me understanding. Increase my vision. But once God speaks something to me, I don't go back and compare it with, you know, something else. 
When I first got started in ministry and God told me to go full time, I had a regular job. I was making some good money. I had just been offered a guaranteed position that would have put me into the leadership in the Arlington, Texas public school system. I had some sweet things going for me. But you know what? When God told me it was time to go into the ministry, there wasn't any consideration about anything else. I didn't sit down and think about, but now God, I have a retirement promised over here. What do I have promised if I go this direction? Now, I have this. I have these benefits. I have health benefits. I have this, this, and this. See, if you would have made those comparisons, did you know that your natural mind would take over and you would be drawn and tempted? You would have some reservations. You wouldn't have the same confidence. But when God told me it was time to go into the ministry, man, that's what I wanted to hear. That's what my heart was saying. And boom, I went for it. Now, you might could have used better wisdom and have done things better than I did, but nonetheless, it's worked. And you know what? I can truthfully say that I haven't sat down and when the going gets tough, I didn't sit there and think about God. I could have had this job over here. I could have been making more money. You know, if I would have done that, if I would have ever sat down and have, when, when I first got started in ministry, there was a lot of hardship in Jamie and my life. I mean, we went through some tough, tough times and most of it was self-inflicted because I didn't understand some things and it was my own stupidity, but my heart was pure, my head was wrong. But nonetheless, when I got into those hard times, if I would have gone back and have said, but before I started in ministry, at least I had this... You know, I was raised in a middle-class home, and I actually was better off financially than most of my friends. I lived in a nicer house. I always got the best bike. I had a car. My mother uh, bought me a car when I was in high school, brand-new car. You know, I was better off than most of my friends. And um, so I was accustomed to having things, and I was usually pretty well off. And then when I got started in ministry, we went from having our needs meant to where it was just a constant struggle. And I can promise you that if I would have gone back in my mind and have started thinking about, well, I used to have this. I used to live like this. I used to be able to do this. And if I would have started making those comparisons, I would have been tempted to quit. I would have been tempted to give up. And I don't know how to explain this completely. I certainly am not taking credit for it, but I'm just saying that it's just something that God worked in my heart that when God touched my life and called me to go full-time in the ministry, I don't care how hard it got. I don't care what our needs were. I never looked back. I never thought, what if? I never went back and thought, well, if I'd have been done doing this, I never have done that. Never, ever, 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 ever have I done that. I don't know exactly why. Again, I'm not saying that I take full credit for it. I know I had to cooperate with God, but it's just something that God worked in my life. I've always been looking forward. And I've had lots of times in our ministry, I've had my board actually come to me and say, you're going to have to close down the ministry. You're bankrupt. Close, give up, quit. Now, that's been many years ago. But you know what? I've been through some hard times. And yet in all of those things, I have never gone back and thought about, well, what if I did this? I've never thought about that. You know, I remember going back to my 20-year class reunion, high school class reunion. And you go back and see your old friends and stuff like this. And I saw a couple of girls that were my girlfriends when I was in high school. And, you know, when you go into that situation like that, I guess it's normal. It's natural to think. 
I wonder what would have happened if I would wound up marrying one of them. I wonder what things would have been like. And you know what? I had those thoughts come to me, but it's just there's no benefit in that. I mean within seconds of me thinking about something like that. I thought, now where is this going to lead me? I said, I know I did exactly what God led me to do. I love Jamie with all of my heart. I know God put us together. What would be the benefit of me thinking about what if I'd have married this person? What would it have... There's just no positive thing that I can see that could come out of that. And there's a lot of negative things that I could see. So you know what I did? I mean just instantly, boom, like that. As soon as a thought came, I thought, boy, this isn't of God. I refuse to think that way. And I've never allowed my imagination to go back and think, what if? Because I know I'm doing what God told me to do. And yet... I hope you understand what I'm saying. Many people, they wonder why it is that they're struggling. They go back to a class reunion. They see an old flame or something. They get to thinking, what if? And they allow their mind just to go and imagine what it would have been like. And of course, they probably only think about the good things. They don't imagine anything negative. And because of this, they think that way. And then years later, a month later, whatever, they all of a sudden get dissatisfied with their marriage they're in. And they say, well, I'm just falling out of love. Things don't work. And they can't make a relationship here and understand why it happened. It only happened because you started entertaining thoughts and thinking about things that you should have never been doing in the first place. Many of you will watch things on television where you see somebody who's in an unhappy marriage, maybe in a situation that's similar to yours, and then they start doing something. They go out and find another person. They have an affair, and through this affair, they start being quote-unquote happy is the way it's presented in the in the movie or whatever. And you allow yourself to watch something like that for entertainment and then you all of a sudden get dissatisfied with your marriage and you start thinking about an affair and you start having lust and desire and you wonder, why am I tempted? I don't want this. It's because you first of all thought it. You can't be tempted with anything that you don't think. And that's profound. That is profound. And yet, it's amazing how people don't do this. They just allow their mind to go anywhere. They're undisciplined. They don't keep their mind focused on the things of the Lord. And then, when those thoughts all of a sudden bring temptation and lust and desires that they don't want, then they try and do everything they can to stop the action. And they resist it and they go to God and cry and say, Oh God, why is it so hard to serve you? Why is it so hard to do this? The reason it's hard is because you've already conceived those things in your mind. In your mind, you've already been there. In your imagination and thoughts, you've already done things that you shouldn't have done. And that's the reason that you are having this temptation come. If you could just understand this truth, that you cannot be tempted with something that you don't think. If you could understand that, and because of that, you begin to start controlling your thinking. Only think things that you want to come to pass. Say, for instance, if God has called you into a ministry or something, then then only think about things that are success and fulfillment of what God has called you to do. Don't think about failure. Don't sit there and compare yourself with somebody else who seems to be doing better because you're going to lust to have their position instead of the position that God has called you to. You just stay focused on what God has called you to do and if that's all you think, that's all you'll be tempted with. You can't go anywhere that you haven't already been in your mind. 
It's just like if you were, you know, digging a tunnel or making a mine, searching for gold or something like that. You just can't walk through dirt, walk through rock. What you have to do is go in there and dig out that dirt and rock and empty that space. And only after you've cleared the dirt and the rock out and emptied that space can you go and stand in that position. You have to, first of all, carve out this place for you to go stand in. Well, in a sense, that's what your mind does. You can't go anywhere in your physical person that you haven't already been there in your mind and in your heart. Therefore, control what you think on. Therefore, control what you ponder in your heart and you can totally control the direction that your life goes. Man, that is an awesome, awesome truth. And if that be true, well then this means that most of us need to go another layer below the surface. Instead of just trying to deal with our actions and stop this action and not yield to this temptation, we need to go deeper than that and quit thinking on things that gender and conceive those temptations. Boy, that's powerful. Let me give you an illustration of what I'm talking about out of my own personal life. I got born again when I was eight years old. And I mean, I was, it wasn't the first time I had sinned, but the first time that God nailed me over a sin. I knew that I had done wrong, not only to my parents, disobeyed them. I had transgressed what God wanted me to do. I got convicted about it, and I got born again, and I was changed. Third grade, my, the next day, uh, I was made fun of for being a Christian. They knew something had happened to me, and I told them I got saved, and they began to start laughing at me and talking about me being saved. I mean, there was enough evidence that people could see a change in my life at eight years old. So I began to start seeking the Lord. I've never gone through a period of rebellion, turned away from God. I've been seeking God my entire life. I was brought up in a home with Christian values. Uh, Now, it wasn't only my environment. Some people will credit The outcome, it's just totally how you were raised. But my brother and sister, I have an older brother and an older sister, and um, they were both raised in the same home. And even though they both loved God and served God, they went off on a tangent for a period of time and and, uh, didn't seek God uh, as much as they're seeking Him now. Uh, I mean, they're doing good. I'm not making any criticism about my family. I'm just saying that it wasn't only environment. It was just God. God spoke to me. I sought God. I served God. And because of it, I guess that just like any other child growing up, I heard about prostitution, homosexuality, sexual immorality, and all of these kind of things. But it just wasn't for me. It wasn't what I knew that God had for me. And so I never thought about it. I never focused on it. I didn't watch movies that portrayed that kind of stuff. I didn't read things about it. The kinds of people who were into sexual immorality and stuff, I broke away from them. Matter of fact, I just recently reconnected with a guy who was my best friend in grade school, and he had gone through a, a drug addiction. I think it is either drug addiction or alcoholism through a divorce, and his life was basically pretty messed up. And he got born again, then saw me on television. We reconnected. And as we started sharing, he gave his testimony to me. And he said, so when did you get born again? And I said, well, I got born again when I was eight years old. 
And he said, you did. And, and it turned out that when I saw him heading the direction he went, now if I would have been uh, stronger and have taught better and things like that, I would have reached out and have helped him. And he basically got on my case. Why didn't you help me? Why didn't you share this with me? But the way I responded when I was young is when I saw my best friend going that direction, I just withdrew from him. I knew that that wasn't where I wanted to go with my life. I didn't want to be hearing the things that he was talking about. And so I just withdrew from him. And over uh, junior high and then in high school, we uh, were just acquaintances. We quit being best friends. And it was because I didn't want to go that direction. So my point is... I didn't live that way. I didn't associate with people who did. I separated myself. And because of that, now here's my point, and this is, I'm trying to bring us back to this point that you can't be tempted with something you don't think. Because of my choices and the way I was taught and different things, I made choices that literally kept me from thinking the way that a lot of people thought as they grew up. I heard about all this sexual immorality, but it wasn't for me. I didn't think on it. And because of that, I wasn't tempted the way that most people were tempted with the sexual immorality and the sexual temptations that they grew up with. And to illustrate this, when I, right after I got really turned on to the Lord, March the 23rd, 1968, I had just graduated from high school in 1967. I was in my first, I was just beginning to go into college. And when that happened, uh, my mother took me on a trip all over Europe. We went to a Billy Graham uh, thing in Bern, Switzerland, and we toured Europe in the process. And the very first night of that trip, we went to New York City. And I, here I was, a hick from Texas, and I had never, I, it had never crossed my brain some of the things that were going on in New York City. Uh, we walked down 42nd and Broadway, and there were prostitutes lined up, a hundred of them, against this wall. And you know what? Again, I guess I had heard about prostitution. I'm not saying that it had never occurred to me, but it just wasn't for me, and so I didn't think about it. And because of that, I honestly didn't have a clue what all of these ladies were lined up against this wall. It never dawned on me that they were hookers and uh, stuff. And you know what? When I saw them, I was so naive that I got my tracks out. I had thousands of tracks with me. And I went down the line and I passed every one of them out of track. And I stood there and (laughs) preached to them all. And I mean, I cleared out the whole section. That's probably the best thing that ever happened as far as enforcement against prostitution and stuff. I just passed them all a track out. I was preaching to them, telling them about the love of God and about the goodness of God. And they all cleared out. I went down alleys and I guess I'd heard about gangs. But you know what? We didn't have gangs in Arlington, Texas where I grew up and I'd heard about them. But it just wasn't something that occupied my thinking. And because of it, I was walking down alleys, 2 o'clock in the morning in New York City. I'd see gangs, and I'd think, man, this is great. And I'd go out and pass them all out of track, and I'd start witnessing to them and talking to them. And you know, that same night that I was out on the streets of New York, I mean, the hick come to town, and uh, I had a pimp come up to me, and this guy tried to sell me one of his girls. And he was using the language of the street and saying all this stuff. And honestly, I know... Some of you are going to be laughing at me. This is embarrassing in a, in a way, but it's a, it's a great testimony of what I'm talking about. That this guy talked to me probably for five minutes, 
trying to get me to buy one of his girls for the evening. And I was so naive, I didn't know what he was talking about. I didn't have a clue what he was talking about. I mean, it just didn't register with me. It just didn't make any sense. And I remember this guy just looking at me and finally he walked off, threw his hands up and he was shaking his head like this, probably wondering what rock did I crawl out from under? And I went back to the hotel room I was staying in. I was rooming with some guys and I started telling them about what this crazy guy was saying to me. And they had to explain to me that he was propositioning me to buy one of his girls for the evening. And they had to explain to me what he was trying to do. But here's my point. Because I didn't think like that, because I hadn't focused on that, because that wasn't someplace that I'd already been in my mind, did you know what? I didn't have a clue what he was talking about. And here's my point. You can't be tempted with what you don't think. I wasn't tempted I didn't have to white-knuckle it. I didn't have to say, oh, Jesus, help me to resist this temptation. It wasn't even a temptation because I didn't know what the guy was talking about. Now, I know some of you are shocked to find out that there was anybody in our day and age that was so naive, but that's exactly how naive I've been. And I really believe that in a sense, that's one of the reasons that God has blessed me is because honestly, I just... I haven't been exposed to some of the stuff that other people have been just because I've been seeking God my entire life. I remember when I was pastoring a church and I had a man call me. I was on radio at this time and a man from Salt Lake City had heard me on the radio and he called me. And the reason he wanted to call me was because he was so embarrassed over his sexual perversions that he was into. He didn't want anybody that he knew to know about this. And so here I was, a person on radio. It was impersonal. He called me and he started confessing to me and telling me the sexual perversions that he was in. And he was talking over the phone. And even though he wasn't looking at me face to face, even though he didn't even know me, as he got to describing the weird sexual (laughs) perversions that he was into, he got embarrassed. And he just, he stopped and he says, I, I just can't tell you all the stuff. But he says, you know what I'm talking about. He says, you've been single. You know what it's like to be single. You know what you go through. You know these lusts. And you know what? Here I was. I was the pastor of a church. I had two children by this time. I was married and had two children. And I had to tell this fellow, I said, guy, I was married and had two co- children. And it wasn't until I started pastoring churches and dealing with other people that I even knew people thought like what you thought. Are thinking. I didn't know that there were ways to sexually pervert things. I didn't know that this stuff was an option. And this guy was just shocked. He was just taking for granted that everybody's been through this stuff. But you know what? I didn't go through a lot of the temptation that probably many of you went through just because I spent my time seeking God, loving God, and through my ignorance, I wasn't even tempted in some of the ways that you all were tempted. Now, I'm not saying that to put myself on a pedestal and to put you down. I'm saying that to illustrate this point that I believe Hebrews 11:15 is making, that you cannot be tempted with what you don't think. And I'm a living proof of it. I wasn't tempted to do some of the things that many of you were tempted to do because it wasn't something I thought of. You know, when I was a kid, I guess when I was in high school, they were just beginning to start 
coming out talking about dope addiction and people experimenting with dope. But certainly when I was in grade school, junior high, my first years of high school, I didn't know that anybody did dope. It wasn't on my radar. It wasn't something I ever thought about. I honestly can say that I have never had to sit there and just resist the temptation to do dope. It wasn't a temptation. I never thought about it. You cannot be tempted with what you don't think. And this fits perfectly with what I've been trying to teach about a hardened heart. See, it's not a matter of just going out and committing sin. But if you are allowing yourself to be exposed to all of the ungodly thinking that is in our world today, the negativity, the griping and the complaining that is in our world, did you know if you expose yourself to that, you are going to be tempted to become like that? If you listen to the people today who I mean they criticize everything, it doesn't matter. They are looking for the, the black lining inside of everything. They don't believe that there's a silver lining behind every cloud. Instead, they're looking for the black lining. They look for the worst case scenario. That is the way that our world is. If you expose yourself to that and don't counter it and don't make a deliberate effort to change that, then I can guarantee you, you're going to become negative. You're going to see the worst side of everything. The only way that I know to effectively counter that, you can't sit there and expose yourself to this and just say, I'm going to still be positive and yet expose yourself to negativism, criticism, griping and complaining, people who are never thankful, they never see anything good. You expose yourself to that and saturate yourself with that and I can guarantee you whether you want to or not, you are going to become like that. And you can sit there and say, oh no, it's not going to affect me. Well, the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 15, 33, be not deceived, evil communications corrupt good manners. If you think that you can listen to all of this evil communication, watch all of this ungodliness, be exposed to all of this negativism, and go unaffected and untouched, according to 1 Corinthians 15, 33, you're deceived. You're deceived because evil communications do corrupt good manners. You're deceived if you're thinking that you're living in this world and yet it's not having any impact on you. You may not go out and ever actually do all of the things that you are being exposed to, but I can guarantee you it's hardening your heart. You could sit there and watch murder and adultery and lying and killing in in movies and things like this, and you may never go act out those things completely. You may never go murder somebody. You may never go commit the adultery. But I can guarantee you, you'll be tempted with it. And that action that you're exposing yourself to is going to desensitize you to God. It's going to change things in your heart. You cannot be unaffected by it. If you want a sensitive heart to God, you are going to have to. I mean, the only totally 100% positive source of godly information in this world is the Bible. And if you aren't studying the Word and taking these truths and changing your thought life to where instead of thinking about all of the evil and the negativism and seeing failure and just becoming super defeated in your attitude, instead you take the Word of God 
And the Word of God will tell you the truth. It'll tell you that there's evil in the world. It'll show you, but it'll always present it in a way that it shows the evil being overcome and the good winning out. I mean, if worse comes to worse, just turn over to the last book in the Bible. Look at the last chapter of the book of Revelation, and God wins. God is going to be enthroned. Every bit of evil is going to be punished, and the good is going to be rewarded. And the Word of God will show you, it'll teach you all that you need to know to be able to function in this life, and at the same time, it will show you the evil being overcome by the good. It will present everything in a positive light. It will draw you towards God, not away from God. It'll have you, uh, it'll cause hope in your heart. There is no other source. I don't believe you can have a sensitive heart to God without being dominated and controlled by the Word of God. Now, I was using from Hebrews chapter 11, verse 15, where it says, And truly, if they had been mindful of that country from whence they came out, they might have had opportunity to have returned. And then it goes on and it continues to use Abraham as an example of this truth. Look at this in verse 16. It says, But now they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly, wherefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he hath prepared for them a city. By faith, Abraham, when he was tried, offered up Isaac, and he that had received the promises offered up his only begotten son, of whom it was said that in Isaac shall thy seed be called. Now this is beginning to talk. It was already using Abraham as an example in that 15th verse. Now it's moving on to another example in the life of Abraham. And this is from Genesis chapter 22 where God told Abraham to offer his son Isaac as a sacrifice. And it's talking about how he remained faithful and how he was able to do that. For just a moment, let me get you to think along these lines. This will help you to really understand the magnitude of what's being said right here. In the New Testament, the Scripture says that what we have is infinitely better than what Old Testament saints had. Matter of fact, Old Testament saints longed uh, to find out from God uh, you know, what it was going to be like in our days. They all looked forward to the day after the Messiah had come and brought us into this relationship. So, based on all of these things, what we have is better than what Abraham had. And yet, think about this. If God was to ask you to offer one of your children as a human sacrifice, would you be committed enough to God to do it? Now, let me put a little P.S. here that, you know what, there is a huge difference between the way things were done in the Old Testament and the way they're done in the New Testament, and God isn't going to ask anybody to offer their child as a sacrifice. But it did happen in Genesis chapter 22. And if that was to happen, could you be faithful enough to God to offer your son or your daughter up as a sacrifice to God? Again, using this logic that what we have is better than what Abraham had, I've actually prayed about this and asked God, God, would I be willing to make the sacrifice that Abraham did? And I tried to put on my best faith attitude and everything. And you know what? I just had, I came up short saying, God, I don't think I could do it. I just don't think I love you enough. I don't think I'm committed to you enough to be able to offer my son as a sacrifice to you. And I was really perplexed by this and praying and saying, God, what's wrong? Abraham didn't have all of the benefits that we have as a New Testament believer, and yet it looks like that he was more committed and stronger than I am. What's going on? 
And you know, the answer to this, I believe, is right here in Hebrews chapter 11. Look at this in verse 19. It tells you what Abraham was thinking. It says, accounting... Or let me go back and read verse 18. It's, uh, it says, of whom it was said that in Isaac shall thy seed be called. This is talking about God uh, called Abraham to offer up Isaac. And Isaac was the one who it was written about that in him shall thy seed be called. And here's what Abraham was thinking in verse 19. Accounting that God was able to raise him up even from the dead from whence also he received him in a figure. In other words, what this is saying is Abraham when he was called by God to offer his son as a sacrifice, didn't see Isaac dead. He saw Isaac alive because God had given him a promise that this was the son through whom Abraham would become a father of many nations. At this time, Isaac wasn't married. Isaac didn't have any children. And so he knew that Isaac couldn't stay dead and have God's word fulfilled. So Abraham, here's what he was thinking. He was thinking that, man, if God wants me to offer him as a sacrifice, then God must going to be raising, is, he must be planning on raising him from the dead. He never saw Isaac dead. And just for time's sake today, I'm not going to turn over there, but you could do this, turn over to Genesis chapter 22, and if you will read the story about where God uh, called on Abraham to offer up Isaac as a sacrifice. It's not the way most of us would envision it. As a matter of fact, many years ago, I saw this movie called The Bible, and it went through and depicted a lot of the instances in the Bible and just showed them. And it showed Abraham being called upon by God to offer his son as a sacrifice. And it showed Abraham, you know, hitting his fist against this wall and just crying out, No, God, anything but Isaac, not Isaac. And he struggled all night long. And finally in the morning, he just drug himself and made himself go fulfill God's will. But as you read it in Genesis chapter 22, that's not the way that it was. It doesn't show any resistance on Abraham's part. It says that he rose up early in the morning and saddled his donkeys and took his son and his servants and the fuel and the, and, and the fire and all of this. And they went to the place that God had told him. It doesn't show any of that agony that is depicted in what most of us would think of. And then when Abraham, this is in Genesis 22, when Abraham got ready to go up the mountain, he left his servants there with the animals and he put the wood for the fire on the back of his son Isaac and he took the fire in his hand and he went up there and he told his servants, he said, I and the lad will go yonder and worship and come again. Now, it's a little bit subtle, but if you think about that, he didn't say, we will go and I will come again, implying that his son was dead and unable to come back. He said, we will go and come again, implying that his son was coming back with him. And that's exactly what this is saying in Hebrews chapter 11. Abraham, the reason he was able to follow through and follow God, even to the point that he was willing to sacrifice his own son, was because he never saw him dead. He accounted that God was able to raise him up from the dead, from whence also he received him in a figure. You know what? If you were so positive that when God says to do something, you never think about the negative. You never think about what might happen. You never contemplate failure. You only see the positive. Well, then you wouldn't be tempted with the fear and the unbelief that goes along with that. If when the doctor tells you you're going to die, 
Instead of being sensitive to the doctor, more dominated by the natural realm than you are the spiritual realm. If you were so into God, if you spent so much time meditating on the Word of God that your heart was sensitive to God, so much so that you never ever contemplated anything contrary to what God's Word says. God's Word says it by His stripes you're healed. The doctor says you got this problem. You know what? If you wouldn't go there in your mind, if you wouldn't think about it, you wouldn't be tempted with the fear and the unbelief and all of the things that Satan has to have. They're essential for Satan to be able to bring that sickness and death into your life. And the reason Abraham was such a strong man of faith was not because he had more than you've got. It's because he had less than you've got. He had less unbelief in him because he hadn't been thinking on all of the things that you and I think upon. You know, I could say it this way, that if you were to take Abraham and if somehow or another we could just put him in a time machine and transfer him to our day and age and park him in front of a television and have him watch the same shows that you watch, listen to the same news, read the same newspaper, read the same magazines and neglect the truths of God's Word the same way that you neglect it, Abraham would get the exact same results that you're getting. But on the other hand, if we had somehow or another a time machine, and if you could get into that time machine and be translated to Abraham's time, to where there wasn't the television, the radio, and all of this other kind of stuff. And of course, there was people in Abraham's day that didn't focus on God but they didn't have as many temptations, as many distractions, as much stuff coming against them. But if you could be translated into that day and time, and if you were to meditate upon the promise of God the same way that Abraham meditated on the promise of God, you'd get the same results that Abraham got. I don't believe that Abraham was superior to us. I don't believe that people today are just you know, deficient compared to people of other times. I believe it all has to do with our focus. God is the same. Our potential is the same. Actually, the New Testament believer's potential is much greater than any Old Testament saint's potential was because we now have God living on the inside of us. We now have the Holy Spirit resident within us. But the same principle applies that for you to get the maximum benefit of what God has put in your life, you have to be single in your focus. You have to be focused upon the things of God. And the sad fact is very, very few people are focused upon the things of God. Very few Christians are committed. We sit and allow the world to just dump its trash in our mind. We allow thoughts in our mind that shouldn't ever be there. And because of that, our hearts have become hardened towards God. And even though we've got a better covenant and God has all these wonderful things available to us, very few of us are partaking of them just because of the hardness of our heart. Here's another example of Abraham in Romans chapter 4. And it's making this exact same point that we were just making over in Hebrews chapter 11. In Romans chapter 4, it says in verse 16, Therefore it is of faith that it might be by grace to the end the promise might be sure to all the seed, not to that only which is of the law, but to that also which is of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made thee a father of many nations before him whom he believed, even God, who quickeneth the dead and calleth those things which be not as though they were. 
And now in verse 18, it's back talking about Abraham. And it says, who against hope believed in hope that he might become the father of many nations according to that which was spoken, so shall thy seed be. That's a quotation from Genesis chapter 15 and verse 6, I believe it is, where the Lord says, go out and count the stars that are in the sky or number the grains of sand on the seashore. And if you can count that high, that's how many your seed is going to be. And when the Lord spoke that to Abraham... That is the promise. He didn't have a written Bible, but God communicated with him. And these were the promises that Abraham held on to. And that's what it says. It was according to that which was spoken, so shall thy seed be. And then in verse 19, it says, And be not weak in faith. Now, Abraham was a strong man of faith. How do you get strong in faith? It's it's beginning to tell you right here. In other words, this is going to start telling you how you get strong in faith. It says, Be not weak in faith. He considered not his own body now dead. Now, those of you that have listened and paid attention to this teaching that I've done on hardness of heart, you'll remember from Mark chapter 6, verse 52, I was teaching that whatever you consider your heart becomes sensitive to or dominated by, whatever you fail to consider, your heart becomes insensitive to. This says he considered not... The word consider means to study, ponder, deliberate, examine, or think upon. He refused to think upon, study, ponder, deliberate, or examine the fact that his body was now dead when he was about a hundred years old, neither yet the deadness of Sarah's womb. Now again, for those of you that aren't familiar with this, the Lord had promised Abraham, who was an old man. At this time, he was 99 years old. His wife was 90 years old. And the Lord told him that in the next year he would have a child and that the children that came out of this child and his uh, seed that came out would be as numerous as the stars in the sky or the grains of sand on the seashore. And this was given to Abraham when he was 99 years old and his wife Sarah was 90 years old. Now let me ask you, if God, if you could just imagine being 99 years old and your wife being 90 years old, And then God spoke to you and said, you're going to have a child this time next year. What would you do? Well, it would be something along these lines. You, first of all, would just probably be tempted to totally discount it because you would think and say, nobody has ever, I don't know anybody that's ever had a child when they're 90-something years old. And if you didn't just throw out that thought and rebuke this and say, that can't be God right then, probably the next step is you'd go to a doctor or something and get checked and find out, am I still able to have children? And you would want him to tell you yes or no. And if he said no, you'd probably throw it right out then. Or you might get on the internet and start researching and find out what the oldest person was that ever had a child. But you would start thinking on things that would gender all of this unbelief. You would ask other people's opinion and everybody would say no. And because of that, then you would have unbelief And you would struggle and say, God, it's just so hard to believe you. But this tells us how Abraham was strong in faith. Look at this. It says, And being not weak in faith, he considered not his own body now dead, nor yet the deadness of Sarah's womb. He didn't consider. He didn't think about. Now, I'm sure that he knew how old he was, but he was focused on the promise of God and not focused on the physical reasons why the promise of God couldn't come to pass. 
See, somehow or another, when God tells us that you're going to do something, when the doctor says that you're going to die, and then you go to God, and God says, no, by my stripes, you're healed. Well, we want to go to research it. We want to go get a second opinion and get the doctor to verify. And we want to accumulate all of this information. We want to go study the disease and listen to people that wouldn't know God if he was to walk up and introduce himself to them and have their opinion tell us that, nope, if you've got this, you will die. You cannot live. And we assimilate all of this negative information, all of this unbelief. And then we go back to God and say, God, look at what they said. It's so hard to trust you in this area. You know why it's hard? Because you've uh, considered all of these other things. Abraham didn't consider anything except what God said. He didn't consider the fact that he was nearly 100 years old. He didn't look at the fact that his wife was 90 years old and impossible. All he did was look at the promise of God. I believe that's one reason God gave him this illustration. He says, count the stars in the sky or number the grains of sand on the seashore. So shall your seed be. One of the reasons I believe that God used those illustrations was because he wanted Abraham. See, Abraham didn't live in a house. He lived in a tent, and I'm sure that he spent a lot of time outside at night. They probably did their cooking and eating outside, and he would look up every night and see all of these stars, multitude of stars. During the day, he didn't have boots like what I have or shoes. But instead, he wore sandals and he got sand on his feet every day and he had to wash his feet and clean his feet. And so day and night, everything he saw in the stars or the sand on the, on the seashore, all of it was constant reminder. So is your seed going to be. So shall your seed be. See all this dirt. You're going to have children that are more numerous than that. See all the stars. Your children are going to number more than that. All of this was to keep him constantly focused on God's Word. I believe that that's the reason God used those illustrations. So for 20-something years, Abraham was just focused on the fact that this is how numerous my children are going to be. And when the Lord finally told him, all right, this is the time next year when you're 100 years old, you're going to have this promised child. Instead of thinking about all the negatives, he had been focused for so long on the positive promise of God's Word that he just kept his mind on that and he never considered his own body, how dead it was, how that his wife was far beyond childbearing age. And that was the strength of him. And again, your heart becomes sensitive to what you consider. It becomes hardened to what you fail to consider. Abraham failed to consider his own body. Therefore, the unbelief that would have come from just looking at things in the natural didn't dominate him because he wasn't sensitive to that. He was hardened towards it. He had been denying the physical, natural truths that would have uh, said God's Word wasn't true, and he had been focused on the Word of God. And it goes on to say in verse 20, He staggered not at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strong in faith, giving glory to God, being fully persuaded that what he had promised he was able also to perform. He didn't stagger through unbelief. Over in Hebrews chapter 3, it talks about an evil heart of unbelief being equal to hardness of heart. We've already dealt with those scriptures. I guarantee you, if you consider other things and get to where you are so preoccupied and dominated with the affairs of this life, it is going to cause an evil heart of unbelief and it will cause you to stagger and not receive the things of God. So that's why you live holy. That's why you stay focused on God, is to keep your heart sensitive to God. 
Man, these are powerful, powerful truths.